0: I know that's kind of a controversial topic like oh everyone should aim aim square i think in theory a lot of amateur golfers should work on their aim that will help them definitely but it's not the end all be all uh how you deliver the putt is the end all be all this is the
1: tournament code we appreciate you taking the time to join us, Marty. We know that you're an active guy. You've got a lot of work in different places. You work with ping. You've worked on the stack and you have a few more other projects that we'll talk about, but before we talk about all that, the place where you start with every guest is the same, which is just tell us how you got into the game of golf.
0: Yeah, no, uh, well, first, thanks for having me guys. Always fun to kind of get a chance to kind of tell some long form stories, I think how i got started in the game i grew up in a small town in arizona a couple hours east of phoenix called globe arizona a small mining town and there was not much to do there and to be honest with you like golf just kept me out of trouble and my dad got me into the sport you know he was a lefty he had a pretty unique history with the with the game he he grew up in the bay area and told stories of shagging balls for ken venturi at the cow club you know, when he was a kid and then he caddied at Riviera when he was in college at Loyola Marymount. So he had a very unique history with the game. And so he was a lefty classic, you know, always read Ben Hogan's book. You know, he had a, he had Ben Hogan's uh, How I Play Golf book was, you know, always in his car. And he was always reading it and highlighting things and doing Ben Hogan-like stuff and playing Hogan irons and things of that nature. So he he he's the one who kind of got me into the game and and, uh, was kind of my golf idol in my early years. And we always used to play golf on every Saturday and Sunday. We would have like a standing tee time year round. That was what we did in our little small hometown there.
1: And you're from a mining town. And if I'm not mistaken, you ended up going to a mining school and playing a little golf. Tell us about your path as far as getting to play higher level golf went.
0: Yeah. So as a junior golfer, I was from that small town. I was never quite like as competitive as some of the other junior golfers in Arizona. So I was always kind of a tier below them and was one of those players that in junior golf teetered on. Yeah, I could play for a D1 school, but they probably wouldn't let me study engineering or I could maybe go to a D1 good engineering school. I almost went to U of A here, but not play golf because I wasn't quite good enough. You know, I was kind of on that fringe. But then the opportunity to play at the Colorado School of Mines, and I learned about it from growing up in Globe, came came up where I could both play golf and do engineering, which I wanted to do. And I liked the prospect of, you know, I like to ski growing up. So being close to the mountains and things of that nature, the school is amazing school really appealed to me. So that's kind of how I wound up there going to the School of Mines. And I think in hindsight, it was a good decision to kind of have that you know, good golf experience, but also like folk not have to sacrifice the academic experience of going to school.
1: And then how did that end up, you know, going to the Colorado School of Mines? How did that end up to where you're ping now have played in multiple PGA championships? How did that unfold?
0: Yeah. So I went to school, School of Mines got a little bit better. Like my junior year and senior year, I got quite a bit better. I think by the time my senior year, i had won I think I won like six or seven tournaments, college tournaments my senior year. Like I played good, and I got good that summer between my junior and senior year. I spent the summers up in Colorado, caddied at Castle Pines during like three, two or three days a week, and then I played all kinds of tournaments and just worked on my game. Days were long. Weather was good. Very different than Arizona summers. And got better. Uh, Won the Colorado State AM and just kind of leveled up my game right there between my junior and senior year. So when I was done with school, I decided to to give the mini tours a run and go to Q School and things of that nature. I did that for one year. Played okay, but I kind of petered out. Probably too a lot, too much pressure on myself at Q School when I went. Didn't have a lot of financial backing. I mean, I had student loans, things of this nature. So I was like, man, I'm going into the working world. So I went into work at Ping, kind of got in the door through a friend of a friend. It's been an amazing experience. So that was kind of my age, like 22 to to 27, worked at Pink, still played some professional mini-tour golf, like still did good in the Arizona Open, some other tournaments locally. And then I joined the PGA of America, started going through their apprentice program around age 27. That took me about three years to get my Class A. And then right at age 30 is when I got my Class A. That's when, you know, you could kind of start uh, opening some of the doors. If you play good, you still got to earn it, man. And the tournament, the the competition is very tough. That's how I kind of qualified for my first PGA Tour event in Las Vegas. Played the Shriners event. Justin Timberlake was kind of the host of that. That was a really fun event to play in as my first one. Very intimidating, <laughs> but. And then my first opportunity to kind of play in the PGA Professional National Championship. Was that next year? I think I was 31 years old, some, some, somewhere in there. And I played really good at Hershey Country Club, Hershey, Pennsylvania. I finished in the top five, I think, like somewhere around fifth or sixth, uh, maybe top five, top six in that PGA, my first PGA professional championship, which qualified me for the PGA championship at Atlanta Athletic Club. This is the one where Duffner and Keegan Bradley were going back and forth. And yeah, I just kind of clutched up and continued to play really good in that tournament. I think it was a skill I've kind of developed is how to play good in those bigger events where they're tougher, they're more challenging, they're four rounds. You kind of get that regression to the mean, so to speak, where like over four rounds on a really tough course, I think the cream of the crop always rise to the top in a 72-hole tournament on a very tough golf course. And then I've just played good in some other events that have kind of springboarded around that PGA of America kind of tournament schedule. And I've kind of made it, you know, kind of my hobby. I call myself an experimental golfer. Like it doesn't matter whether I play good or not because I have a job. It's not my number one thing, but it is addicting. It's very fun. And I've tried to be hyper efficient and gain little tiny advantages that have helped me do good in in those events and hopefully i i have some more to come
1: we're gonna talk about that in just a second i just remembered i remember this maybe a month or two ago and at the risk of embarrassing myself i we actually met i'm 99 percent sure that year at the pga championship at atlanta athletic club i think both you and Bubba Watson went to to oh, tour yes. Superstore on Holcomb yes, Ridge Road. I remember Road. that. Yes. I was I was there in that line and were you you really? there. yeah. I can I can that remember so it vividly. Cool. Yeah. It was uh, there are guys, I don't know if you remember there were so that was back when the, with the overalls. Yes, with the overalls. <laughs> <laughs> what a small world. So
0: how can I forget that? I remember that's when Bubba was in his prime. I mean, that was peak yeah. Bubba. Like he was he was in his prime and he had he had a he had a cult following out there. Let's just put it that way.
1: That was that was incredible. Yeah, I was probably I'd have been 16 or 15 years old at that time. And yeah, I remember meeting you in there. They said, oh, this is the guy who designed. I can't remember which driver it was at the time, but uh, he's playing in this and had designed this driver and uh, yeah. talked to you for a few seconds. Uh, really? And then moved on through the line. Yeah, I, I remember. So it's cool. It's cool to connect and remember that again.
0: That's amazing.
1: You call yourself an experimental golfer who tries to find himself edges wherever he can, and you kind of got to be to a degree if you're going to try to play these high-level events and work a job. Tell us about some of the strategies and tactics that you've taken in order to make the most out of what you got.
0: I think about this a lot, and, and this applies to, like, even the design world if, if you have too many too much time and too many resources i actually think it can be a bad thing there's this kind of concept out there called the freedom of constraints and i i swear that if i have 1 hour of free time now versus my mini tour days where i had nothing else to do other than get better at golf i think i can be better with my 1 hour now than 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 uh, 16 waking hours of nothing else to do back in those days there's there's something to having that like constraints like i only have this much time i am forced to be very efficient with that time this is similar to in the design world if we're designing a club like if you if you took off all the handcuffs and constraints of design i think the human brain would be more challenged to come up with something creative in that scenario than actually hey you can't cross this wall here you got this boundary over here we're going to get very creative because we have those constraints. So I, I, I've tried to do a lot of things. I think that's kind of like a little theoretical talk, but, 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 practically speaking, what does that mean? I get very tactical with how I train and practice. I do a lot of things at home. Like for example, man, I got a walking treadmill desk. I walk on every morning. That's like, how do you, how do you work on your fitness? I'm gonna go to the gym. Can't do it. I got a million emails to do and my work at ping and work on the stack. Like, how do you do it? I'm going to walk on an inclined treadmill with a weighted vest on while I'm doing emails and admin stuff and communication stuff in the morning. And what do you know? Like that just adds up over time, compound interest. I do a lot of block practice indoors. So, hey, you know, I think 10, you can do a ton with 10 to 15 minutes a day, indoor putting mat, block practice, work on your alignment. So you don't go, so that way when you go out to play golf or play a tournament, you know, two weeks later, it's not like as if you've never a setup to your putter, you know, or you can't make it out to the course, or you go to, you know, in the winters here in Arizona, it sounds great, but I go to work, it's dark. I come home, it's dark. Like the days are short. So actually that's when having doing indoor stuff, doing stuff at home, block practice with your putting, working on your speed training in my little home garage setup area. These things become like very important skills and you can do them with a very short amount of time. Like I think that's the key maybe to 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 your guys listen to the listeners out there is you don't need massive amounts of time to be efficient with it and get stuff done
1: i think you're dead on there obviously you're a smart guy and know the know the direction to go generally speaking i think that's something that both cooper and i noticed in both our practices and in friends of ours and cooper was out caddying on corn ferry for a while seeing how everything goes and it can be easy to get dragged away in a practice to not necessarily spit to spend time feeling good not spend time getting good and yeah. uh you got to make the most of it and i can tell you like now i feel like if i spend a little bit of time i can get just as good as i was in college when i was spending seven ten hours a day practicing and exactly. who, kn- who knows <laughs> who knows what else and that indoor stuff yeah finding ways to get those advantages. One of the, something that we tweeted out of, I think last week was this project that I did in my house and Cooper is doing one up at his place, which is, you know, when it comes to green reading, it's hard to, at least for me, it's hard to get the limited amount of time I have out there. I generally think, cause I don't have a simulator. I can't be hitting, I need to be hitting golf balls when I get out there and, I can, and he can spend some time on the putting green, but like, feeling percentages going through my reads for my tour read, et cetera. I can't, I can't necessarily be out there doing that. And so taking something that Lou Stagner done, built a a platform at home that's at 0% and then putting little uh, shims under it that knock it up a half percent and practicing like that, like finding those keys makes it so okay. Like, yeah, it's raining today or it's Monday. The club's closed. No big deal. I can still get things done. Besides, you know with working with a weighted vest you said that you worked on putting fundamentals at least like making sure that everything was set up right when you would go before you would be able to go out tell us what a putting fundamental routine looks like for you in that practice
0: yeah indoors man i just do a lot of block practice i'm i'm at ping we've done a lot of research on this we don't necessarily believe that people need to aim where their intended start line is Because we've seen so many great putters aim a little bit left, aim a little bit right, and re-deliver the, and then deliver the putter on their intended start line. Because face angle is king, path matters very little in 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 putting, relatively speaking. Just kind of like ball flight laws of a putt type thing. However, for me personally, I like zeroing everything out. I like reading the putt properly, whether it's right to left or left to righter, and I I use a line on my ball, and I like to aim my putter on my intended start line. That's personal to me, not not necessarily the right thing for everybody, and there's a lot of different strategies out there. So how do I incorporate that in some home practice? Just like a little laser setup, line on the ball. I use a long putter. In, in aiming the putter, some I've kind of got, you know, kind of enlightened to. I always kind of knew it, but some things are obvious in hindsight. It's not just aiming the face. It's like there's yaw, pitch, and roll. You gotta aim the the handle lean, right? You got to aim the face, the rotation about the shaft axis, and then you have to aim the lie angle. So I practice, and we built this kind of tool into iPing 2.0. Also, we actually did this with Tony Finau and Boyd Summerhays to build this really cool live loft and live loft and live biofeedback tool in the iPing 2.0 that I use, and I know my settings in there from a lie standpoint, which is just around 10. 10 degrees with the long putter. My shaft lean, I, I try to get pretty neutral. And then face rotation, I use the catch putter, line on the ball, get it all lined up. And I just do like a lot of block practice with those things. And then when I, I feel like then when I go out and do my green reading, do my practice on the course, focus on my speed, that part's already taken care of. Like I've done my time. I put in the work. I've invested in that area. I can trust it. Everything feels very familiar. Spatially, proprioceptively, and then I'm ready to rock and roll when it comes comes time to to make putts out on the course.
2: So now, for those really good players that may be aiming a little bit right or a little bit left, are they consistently aiming a little bit right or a little bit left, or are they kind of just wherever?
0: Yeah, we see that's a one thing we've seen in our in our research at Ping is like the the best players repeat right? They may have bias. They may aim a little left. They may aim a little bit right. We've also seen players, and we work with John Graham on this quite a bit, that aim left to righters differently than they aim right to lefters. But the, if they repeat it, that's what matters. So when we fit putters at ping and we build all of our algorithms into IPing 2.0, it is all about the repeatability. Like we, we have, we've had, yeah, this is going back eight, 10 years now, Reese Davies was one of our best putters on the, on the, on the European tour. He aimed his putter, I think like four degrees to the left of the, of the, the start line. He was statistically one of the best putters on the European tour, DP world tour. And it came down to that question, like, are we going to change his putting or his, or his putter (laughs) base because he's aiming four degrees left. It's a really interesting kind of thought experiment. So I know that's kind of a controversial topic, like, oh, everyone should aim aim square. I think, in theory, a lot of amateur golfers should work on their aim. That will help them, definitely. But it, it's not the end-all, be-all. Uh, how you deliver the putt is the end-all, be-all because, you know, the ball starts about 90% of the start line of the putt is based on the face angle, not the path.
1: The club face is king in almost every context of, uh- Putting, including
0: the putter. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Put, putting putting included. When it comes to some of your work at Ping with drivers, we talked uh, before we went live, we talked some about the drivers you just, you've you designed or been the lead yeah. designer on, uh, and there's a long list. Tell us about the progression of driver heads and what has changed over time and what we're looking at right now with the most recent Ping models, some of the changes that have had.
0: Yeah, driver designs are really fun. They they they've been, they've been the most fun and also the most challenging to work on as a designer. There's so much happening like the speeds are super high, the consequence of the bulge and roll and the inertia and mishits is super high. It's the most important club for scoring. You guys have interviewed Lou and all these other other uh, statisticians, so you guys know that. That's another controversial thing, semi-controversial thing, but the driver And how you hit the driver is super important on most golf courses, obviously. So yeah, driver technology has changed a lot. I think at Ping, we've taken a very kind of what's called the first principles approach is like, what are the fundamental physics of what's happening with the driver? Like, you know, there is, we, we had the center of gravity low and back for a long time. Some others were out there promoting, it should be forward. They've all of a sudden now they think back is good type of thing. But we've kind of stayed. I think that's one of our advantages at Ping is we've stayed very focused on the golf physics. Like, what are the fundamental principles driving the physics? What's the problem the golfer's trying to solve? Right, and how do you marry those two things together? Okay, so the golfer and driver needs to hit the ball far, and they need to be mindful of the dispersion. Right, your goal with the driver is not to hit every fairway and hit it short. If you did, hit a sand wedge off the tee. You know what I mean. There's this ratio of how much distance you need to hit it relative to the accuracy. And for most, we've actually run the numbers on this. My colleague, Chris Brody, son of Mark Brody, actually ran the analysis on this. Um, And for your everyday golfer, that ratio is two to one. For your tour player, it's about three to one. That means for every two yards further, they hit it in distance. They can live with one more yard offline, and that's a break even from a strokes gain standpoint. Well, we, then we bring that into the driver design and say, okay, how do we make it go further while being mindful of dispersion? To make it go further, uh, we can get better launch conditions, so uh, better launch and, and spin for the given attack angle and ball speed of the golfer. We can make the club go faster through the air. We can make the club have higher momentum, for example. This is the birth of counterbalance shafts, so or Alta CB shaft design. That stands for counterbalance. That's to have a heavy head and a longer length, long, short, long length drivers are, are for a lot of people like going to a shorter driver and getting a tri- tighter dispersion is not the best solution for a lot of golfers. If you have a high inertia driver, you can have a longer length driver, keep a heavy head with a count, super counterbalanced shaft, get more momentum to get more ball speed. You can make the driver go faster through the air. We do that through aerodynamic things like turbulators and Vortec and other shaping things that we've done to make the driver go faster through the air. So it's like you can make the driver go faster through the air. Then you want to make the driver more forgiving because you're, you're not going to hit the center of the face perfectly every time. That's totally okay. You can increase the moment of inertia. You can do things with the bulge and roll optimization, and that's what's in our G430 driver. Are we have a a change a calculated change in the face shape that makes hits low on the face not increase the spin? We call the spin consistency is kind of our marketing term for it. But when you hit low on the face, normally get the, because of the gear effect you get really low launch and super high spin or much higher spin. We change the curvature to have about the same spin low on the face as when you hit it perfect. That level of innovation was equivalent to increasing the moment of the inertia of the driver by like 20%. So I think a lot of people ask this question, well, how can there's all these rules, there's all this stuff. How much can you really improve the driver? Every year, we're stacking on these technologies, year after year after year, model design after model design, and when you add it all up, the gains are just absolutely phenomenal in both ball speed, distance, accuracy. Well, guess what? The first thing happened when we gave our new G430 driver to the tour player, and they miss it one a little thin, neck one a little bit, and instead of it like rising up into the crosswind and kind of floating offline, it held its line. It had tighter spin, tighter flight. These are words the tour players describe it. What do they do if you give them a more forgiving driver? Swing harder. And then they're swinging harder, they're hitting it further. So you even get the compounding effect into the inner psychology of the the, the player, and it's just the ultimate win-win, very positive-sum experience.
1: You mentioned that you know the improvements regarding the spin were essentially like increasing the CO. I think you said COR. Um,
0: the 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 MOI, the, yeah, oh, the moment right. of inertia, the MOI yeah. by
1: twenty by twenty percent. And you talked about yep. hitting it on the sweet spot i think if i recall a while back and this was this would have been like five five ten years ago there were different spots on the face that were across drivers generally speaking the center of the face wasn't necessarily the best spot to hit the ball and i could be mistaken that so if i'm wrong correct me what is what is the true sweet spot what is the now now with modern design What is the best spot on the face to hit the ball? And is that different from what it was previously?
0: Yeah, that's actually a great question. So I think like 10 years ago, center gravities and spin rates were generally kind of too high to be optimal for distance. So then what did you do as a player? What were you told by your coach? Oh, hit it in the magical high toe, hit the high toe tumbler, and that's going to go way further. And in hindsight, that was absolutely the correct thing to do. Because the because the nominal spin of the driver, the average design spin rate of the driver, when you hit it in the true sweet spot, align the force line of the driver, the angle of attack with the ball, if you hit it in the sweet spot, your spin might have been too high to be optimal. So then as a player, you hit it in the high toe. You hit it in the high toe, your ball speed went down because you're no longer hitting in the sweet spot. But your... But, because your spin got so much lower and closer to optimal, you actually hit it further. So you could hit it further with a lower ball speed. Those days, at least with our product, are gone, because now we've designed the center of gravity to be lower, So and we know the perfect launch conditions. At Ping, we are the experts at kind of knowing the perfect launch conditions ballistically, because of the research we've done with golf balls, ball flight, angle of attack, this kind of fitting sweet spot that we have, we kind of fed that into our driver design. So now you can hit in the theoretical sweet spot. That sweet spot and impact will deliver the optimal launch conditions. And we make different models that have different spin rates. So now you don't need to hit that high toe ball that has a little draw to it to hit the perfect distance. Now you can get fit for the driver that you hit it in the sweet spot. It's going to go the furthest. And to hit it the furthest, you also don't want to curve the ball. The tour players that hit it the furthest and also drive it the straightest, generally speaking, minimize their curve. The ones that hit it really far play tiny draws and tiny fades, but the, the but their spin axis is tiny. And, and a lot of the time, it's kind of like a psychology thing, like, oh, I never want to see the ball go left. Well, they still kind of toe it and draw it a little bit occasionally. That's what the data shows. Their brain doesn't remember that, but when you look at their actual spin axis data from – from Shotlink, from Trackman on the course, those players do actually hit at an equal amount of like draws and fades out there. So the tour players hit it very straight and that's a modern key to hitting it far is minimize your spin axis.
1: And the reason for that to make it ex- extremely clear, you know, a lot of people you say, oh, you have to hit, uh, this was way before, this is before we had launch monitors and even in the genesis of launch monitors, oh, exactly. a draw goes further than a fade or something like that. and. No matter what, if the ball's curving a lot, that's more def- more energy that's been deflected and hasn't gone directly into the ball, and it's more distance that the ball is spending moving right to left than could be you could be spent going forward.
0: Yeah, that yeah, that's kind of the essence of it. And in the old days, you did have to tow it and hook it to have that ball go far. Those days are gone, right? And I think, but some. Some teachers, coaches, players, they their memory might be back in that time 10, 20 years ago when that was true and still have that associated with it. But we've kind of, you know, that's been solved through modern driver design, fitting techniques, understanding of the physics. Now you can get dialed in and try to, as a golfer out there, I think from a driver standpoint, you should try to hit that thing as straight as possible. Uh, there's no advantage to hitting a slight cut or a slight draw. You know, no real such thing as a, is a, is a, is a, you know, one-way miss and things of that nature. You can just kind of try to straighten it out. Sometimes hit a little fade, sometimes hit a little draw. And on average, that ball is going to go, go further. And because distance is more important than accuracy, generally speaking, that's a positive thing.
2: I'd like to switch gears a little bit and talk about your playing career some. I'd just like to learn more about what you have learned personally from playing in all the major championships that you've played what your experience was at that first one in Atlanta Athletic Club and what you've learned since then.
0: Yeah, that first one in Atlanta, man. uh, A, it was hot. (laughs) Hot (laughs) Atlanta. I was so nervous in that first tee shot at Atlanta. I think I get very nervous on the first tee, like even my local section events, and not not to the level of playing in a major, but I always get very nervous. If I can get off that first tee, I mean, I don't get like – very nervous after that, unless it's like coming down the stretch, I got a big putt to win the tournament or some of that nature. But the first tee shot's always very challenging for me. And that first tee shot, Atlanta Athletic Club was a three wood. Like it's, it's the shot like drivers too much. It was this little dog leg tree on the left, serious Bermuda rough on the right. It's like a perfect three wood shot down there. And I did not want to hit three wood, (laughs) but I did. I remember I kind of blocked it over into the right rough. I think when I get nervous with my old mechanics in hindsight, like I block a lot of shots, take it back too short, shift to the left too early, get a little bit late, leave the face open, block it over to the right. Sure enough, that's what I did. Uh, it was a very fun experience. I think I grew a lot. I'm really glad I had played in one PGA tour event prior to that major because it was next level. Like I played in the Shriners event in Vegas before that PGA championship and that Shriners event is like, a, you know, it, it still is a little, little smaller, a little casual crowds are way smaller. Then you get to the PGA, man, that thing was like a hundred X, the energy level, the number of people, the buzz, the cameras, the. Players. I mean, it's the strongest field of any of the majors. The volume of players, the 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 coaches, and Butch Harmon on the range and hitting balls next to Tiger. I mean, all these things is like next level. I grew a lot during that tournament. I think the big thing I've learned. One of your questions was playing. What have you learned playing all those majors? It's the importance of driving the golf ball. Like distance is super important, but when you get into the majors, every hole you got to step up there and hit that driver good. Like uh, most of the time um you have to drive the ball really well and there's just a bigger percentage of importance on driving the ball and then your long game because you're gonna you're gonna be uh hitting long irons and maybe high lofted fairway woods into very long par threes that's been a part of every major i've played in like you're hitting a way bigger percentage of long irons and the importance of driving the golf ball well is way more important in those majors. And I think that's true even for the tour player relative to another event they're playing the week before. The rough is more penalizing. There's more of an advantage to be down there further, and you're going to be hitting more long irons into par threes, par fours, than those other regular events. And so it's just very different than Arizona golf. It could not be more different than Arizona golf. You don't hit as many long irons. You end up not hitting a lot of drivers. It's not as big of a priority in Arizona golf. So it's very challenging to kind of train for that type of golf coming from from where I'm typically playing.
1: Yeah, that first shot at AC, I, I can imagine. And then even co- going back there, I was there that you and I met, as we said, at PJ Tour Superstore, but I was there every day of the week for that event, practice rounds through Sunday. And it was a fun, fun time, but now – haven't gotten out there to play afterwards. That the shot on the shots on eighteen, especially like there's not there's not the most amount of room to miss. And I don't know. I don't remember what they were playing as out of bounds. If they were playing things as in course out of bounds that week, but some of the holes when I got out there and I'm not playing as deep as you guys were playing it, and I don't have fans out there watching me. But when I got out there, I was like, huh. Well, it looks like the best shot here is to aim like right side rough and. If I hit a little left, it's in the fairway. If I hit a little right, exactly, it would hit where the fans used to be because that's there's not exactly. that much room.
0: Yeah, there were some intimidating tee shots. I think like number eight, dogleg left, like water all down the left. Man, you get in those majors, and I've played like Beth Page, obviously I did good at. I played Wingfoot, Harding Park. You get in those majors and tee off on some of those holes, especially if it's like an elevated tee. And number eight Atlanta Athletic Club was kind of like that. And then you get the fairway that's, let's call it 20 yards wide, 22, 20, even 24 yards wide. It looks like you have nothing to hit at. <laughs> I think that's the biggest thing from playing in the majors is just how intimidating some of those tee shots are. And the big name players, man, I mean, that's what makes a Brooks Kepka and a Victor and these guys are driving machines, man. They just, I don't think they sweat those holes. They get up there and, dude, I'm going to bomb it right down in there and I'm going to hit it both far and straight. And, and they just don't have that fear factor that, you know, if your game's a little fragile, those holes are going to break you.
2: <laughs> so strategically speaking, if you're playing Beth Page Black, you know, it's 20 wide yard fairways, super thick, rough, deep bunkers. Are you just going to send it up there on most holes and kind of see what happens? Or are there kind of holes that you're laying back on?
0: It's an interesting one. Like Beth Page. And, and let's say Beth page and maybe even Wingfoot, those holes actually, those courses actually don't require a lot of strategy. Like there, there, there aren't many holes like that where you're like at Beth page, there's literally only one hole where the field was split on what to do. I think it was number six, like some of the players sent it down with driver around the corner, but if you pull it far enough left, you're in like double bogey territory or you kind of hit like five wood driving iron thing over to the right, but you got like an eight or nine iron in. Or if you hit it the other path, you got a wedge in. Literally, no, I think it was number six, I'm virtually certain, was the only hole where there was a difference in strategy amongst players. Every other hole, you just step up there and you're hitting driver on every hole and you're trying to hit it with the exception of like number two, you're trying to hit it down there as far as possible and and keep it in the fairway. Wingfoot was the same thing. I think that's what makes a few of those courses kind of interesting is that there, there actually isn't as much on the strategy side different to differentiate yourself between another player and it's all about execution. It's an interesting thought experiment. Like if everybody knows the proper strategy on a course, the right risk reward, there's no advantage to knowing the right strategy, right? Like you have no, I have no advantage over another player. We both know that drivers, the right play on this hole. It's all about execution at that point in time or speed. That's why speed training is important or equipment because you need more forgiveness. So if everybody knows the right strategy, there's no advantage to, you know, necessarily to separate yourself from the other player. It's all about execution at that point.
1: You mentioned strategy and we've already established that uh, generally speaking, you don't need, you don't, your philosophy and what you've seen from players is you don't need to hit it one way or you shouldn't be trying to hit it one way necessarily you try to hit it as straight as possible as compared to with, with the driver as compared to like only hit draws or only hit cuts for some reason. And I think also I've seen some tweets. I'm not sure whether they're tongue in cheek or not, but when it comes to different sorts of approach shots, I think again, depending on how I'm interpreting some of what you've said, maybe you would differ from people that say only hit, stock shots uh no matter where the pin is located or things like that tell us a little bit and again i could be misinterpreting so tell us your theories and philosophy regarding approach strategy to pins depending on uh different variables and what you've seen from great players
0: yeah that's a great question man i think there's a lot of nuance around this question i think i think what's been Kind of lost in the weeds here a little bit of that topic, like should you shape the ball or not, hit it one way or not, should you draw your driver you know hit your driver two directions or not, things of that nature. I would say the research that we've done in my general philosophy subject to change because like you know we could come find out there's new information, new research and and maybe we're a little bit wrong on this, but we've kind of stressed this quite a bit, is that if for your everyday golfer and even your tour player it the there there would be no advantage to hitting like a slight fade versus hitting it dead straight. Other than that, maybe that's like your inner psychology finds more comfort in that. But there's no like physics advantage to that per se. So you can go at like your face to path variability. That's gonna that's gonna cause a draw if you're nominally zeroed out with zero spin axes in, in hitting it straight. That's gonna be that same variability if you kind of if you have the face to path one or two degrees open every time hitting a slight little fade. So, there could be some like comfort reasons to hitting a slight draw or slight fade. But if you don't hit the ball and have enormous ball speed, generally, and for your everyday golfer, it definitely try to zero out that spin axis so you can hit the ball as far as possible with the driver. Now, there could be things you're trying to do with your coach or will change your mechanics for a short period of time, hit a little draw because you're overdoing something, spectruming something, shallowing out things of that nature, trying to hit more up that could be an advantage in the short-term sense, but long-term, try to zero out that driver. Uh, Now, when it comes to approach shots, that's, again, it depends on what your goal is. If your goal is to be the best iron player in the world, like Tiger Woods, Justin Thomas are some great examples of here, then uh, we saw it with Rory (laughs) over – you know, at the Scottish Open, the the shot hit in the last hole, you will definitely want to be shaping your irons into different pins because you just think through the th- the thought experiment: is the greens get super firm, you need to control the land angle vector in order to con- to 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 reshape your 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 dispersion pattern for a specific pin. Justin Thomas is the ultimate example of this. He shapes the ball more than anybody on tour. When we've when we've mined his data, he hits an average number of greens in regulation. This is mind-boggling. He hits an average number of greens in regulation, but he's over the last like 10-year period or however long he's been on the tour, he is always like in the top 5 range depending on where you slice and dice the data in terms of distance from the hole or his approach shot, but in strokes gained approach. So why would that be? And then we went in and sliced his data into like the nine different quadrants on the green. So you got back left, back right, back middle, front left, front middle, front right, and then the three middle quadrants. And he is on average more aggressive or his average approach is closer to the pin in all those different back quadrants. So on a back pin, he's closer to like everyone comes up short, but he comes up short way less. The back right pins, he's closer, he's further back and more to the right, and then the back left pin, he's further back, closer to the left, and he shapes it into all these pins. So he is effectively, like I think, just way more effective at making birdies more often and improving his proximity to the hole more often. That might not be the best strategy for everybody. That might not even be the best strategy if your goal is just to get on the PGA Tour. Right. If your goal is just to get on the PJ tour, uh, your best strategy might just be to hit your one stock shot and and that might be a, a dead straight shot into all those pins, but you aren't gonna be as good of an iron player as Justin Thomas. You're not gonna make as many birdies as him, and you're not you're you're not gonna be like Tiger Woods, he's the ultimate shaper of the golf ball, provides tons of advantages. You can hold it against the wind, your distance control can be way better. We saw that with Rory on his shot there and at the Scottish Open, his last shot, he was between four iron and two iron. He needed to make birdie to win. His four iron could not get to the hole. He could that might have been in, in in a regular tournament play the best shot for him to hit to to lower his average score from that shot might have been to hit the four iron. And on Average he might have made par most amount you know the highest percentage of the time. He decided to take the two iron play more aggressive, cut it into the wind to take distance off, and he obviously hit it close to the hole, made birdie, and won the tournament, took on more risk on the last shot of the hole when there was more on the line. So that's a really good example, I think, where the most elite players, if you want to be a very elite iron player, It would be advantageous to curve the ball, shape the ball into different pins, leverage the wind, and improve your distance control.
2: So would you say a good rule of thumb is that these players are kind of working the ball towards the pin, towards the side of the green that's closest to the pin? So like, say the pin's on the right, there's water on the right, they're going to be hitting a fade into that pin?
0: Yeah, uh, a player like Justin Thomas would definitely do that. That is n- I'm not saying, suggesting that's the appropriate strategy for everybody. I'm not saying some great iron players, a la Tom Lehman and some other ones, wouldn't just draw it in there anyway. But their average proximity to the hole on those pins is going to be much worse. I mean, I think a player who curves the ball more than anybody, now that Bubba's not on the PGA Tour, with their irons, and in general, is Martin Laird. And we've looked at his data. He only cuts it, and he cuts it a ton. His strokes gained approach to the right pins is phenomenal. Front right pins, middle right pins, back right pins. He is one of the worst in scoring and strokes gained approach to all the left pins. He never curves it the other direction. And he's typically done good on some repeat golf courses that are better for Uh, TPC Summerlin for example for that fading type of approach so it's pretty easy to predict he's a one-way player right and but if you give if you give a back left pin to him and then Justin Thomas I'm taking Justin Thomas all day long or Tiger Woods.
2: How much of that is like just comfortability and how much of that is, you know, he's hitting a fade. So once it hits the green, it's gonna bounce right, it's gonna spin right.
0: Oh, a lot of it's yeah, no, a lot of it's the the the, the vector, the angle at which that ball is hitting the green. And on tour greens, they're firm. Right. That's the that's the thing most people that's the other thing most people don't realize. Like you go play a, a tour a tour event, and most of the time the greens are an order of magnitude firmer. So you need to control the land angle number one, and then you need to be able to leverage the wind to control your distance. That's the other factor in advantage you would have if you have that capability and skill to work the ball both ways with your irons. That is not an easy skill. That takes a lot of, in my opinion, it takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of, you know, very like for example, I don't even do that a lot <laughs> because it's like I don't have the time to put in to 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 curve the ball both ways. I think if my goal was to be the best iron player in the world and to ha- separate myself from a scoring standpoint, I would definitely learn to curve the ball into pins and leverage the wind a little bit more often than than even I do. So it's even though I I, I think and argue that it's the best strategy to be the most elite or very elite iron player. It is a very hard skill to acquire, practice, and and learn.
1: You know, one of the things that Cooper reminds me a lot is that golf is not played in a vacuum. And I like to sometimes think it is. And I think that 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 is a perfect case in point of that. I'll tell you prior now, I was when I'd seen you tweet that, I was like, all right, like, sure he has a reason for it. I'm interested to hear why. And, And theoretically speaking, I was like, if you just took someone on range, and you they had a draw pattern and a yeah. fade pattern ostensibly you probably wouldn't be able to tell much of a difference between those shot patterns assuming they're aiming at a center a center target like there's not going to be a difference you overlay exactly. that over a hole okay there's not going to be like there's going to be no perceivable benefit but just like you said if the greens are firm and that ball's rolling out that landing vector is going to be important as to where that ball finally finishes and you can only th- a think that if you realize golf isn't played in a vacuum. B but the data that you had, I mean, that's pretty that's pretty convincing evidence to me as far as just that. And I'm sure you have plenty more. But like explaining, okay, here's JT stuff, and I was like, all right, like I can follow that. But like, what about what about someone else? What if that's an anomaly? And then you mentioned that with Martin Laird, and I'm sure you got a dozen more that you could totally tell me where I'm like, okay, yep. well that 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 makes the first principles track on that 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 makes sense to me
2: that's super interesting just hearing like the comparison between um greens and regulation and then strokes gain approach i've never heard those two stats compared
0: and jt is the one that's like off the map like it's always fun to run this data and figure out okay who's or who are these outliers and what do they do we we've all watched jt dude he 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 curves the ball more than anybody, man. It's really fun to watch. He's hitting stinger drivers, chip draws. Do you he's, think he's carving it in there? And yeah. and 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 he's known for that amongst his peers. You know,
2: I can definitely see how you know after talking that it helps him with his approach. My personal opinion is that he tries to do it too much off the tee, and that hurts him. What's your opinion on that?
0: Maybe, maybe. I I I would have to dive. I'm always like. Like, my instinct says yes, maybe. Like, okay, he's on 13 It's Augusta. He, he hits this cute little draw, and he overdoes it over into the trees. Oh, why didn't he just hit his stock thing down there? Um, so, like, maybe it's just that N equals one example where it really came back to bite him. But I don't know. I think you, what you see on tour all the time, I mean, it was fun to watch. The Phoenix Open this year, the WM Phoenix Open, it was pretty windy, like, I think on Friday's round. And Rory played. And he was hitting some, like, stinger drivers down there going 380 yards because the fairways were firm. Really fun to watch. The tour players change their vertical. People think working the ball is all about left to right and right to left. But with the driver, the tour players send the ball up and down a crazy amount. And it's virtually all of them do it. Change their tee height, change their angle of attack, hit stinger drivers, hit lower drivers. Definitely a very important skill to have is to be able to change your trajectory with your driver. And the wind is such an important thing. It, the, the wind is the... I mean, I've done a lot of personal research on this and used some wind stuff and wind sheets and understanding wind to my advantage. When I play golf, I think it's provided me a nice little micro advantage over, over the competition. But it is the least understood crack thing out there. Uh, it, it's the most... It, it, it'd be like... Green reading before aim point. It's like, well, how do you read greens? Well, it all breaks over here. Just see it, whatever. Now we have a system, a physics-based system to do it that you can either lean 100% on or intersect that with your intuition. I think a lot, that's what a lot of the good players do. Like you do aim point plus your intuition. You marry those two things together. Wind is is kind of the same thing, man. And you got Tiger is the ultimate example of how riding the wind. I've watched him play. A million times and how he leverages the wind uses the wind fights the wind rides the wind flights it up flights it down him and jt are very similar in that regard and that's something about curving the ball that's super important i go back to that rory example trying to take distance off he had to cut that two iron up into the wind to remove distance
1: that's super interesting i want to go down a couple different rabbit holes but we've talked a good amount with you you got stuff going on and we got things to do as well a lot of it probably just processing this and what we've learned we're gonna hit a, <laughs> we're gonna hit a few quick points here and then we'll let you go for ball namix what we'll probably do is we'll, we'll set up a conversation with chris at some point in time and talk more in awesome. depth about that uh, yep. tell us a little bit about what ball namix is and what you've learned doing that
0: yeah, so Ballnamic is a is a product solution, it's ballfitting.com, and and the idea behind it was to give that tour level access to golf ball fitting to the everyday person. Because tour players, let's face it, it's it's kind of they're in an unfair advantage a little bit. They're out there, they if a new golf ball comes out, they go test it around the greens, they hit it with the driver, they take it on the course, they play it in different wins, and and they get to see what it does, right? The everyday golfer can't do that. You can't go buy 50 different models of balls out there and then go out and test them in calm conditions, windy conditions, chip them all around the greens. Like it would take you like a year to do that. That what the tour player gets to do, just at their normal normal tour event. So Ballnamic was taken. Hey, we've seen some very interesting things happen with golf ball performance that can change your custom fitting of your clubs. And so, the real value of ballnamic is like, hey, I'm spinning my driver a little bit too much, but this driver's very forgiving. I love the look. My launch is perfect, but it's spinning two or three hundred or four hundred RPMs too much. Instead of chasing tweaking your driver, and this is what tour players do, a lot of them will just switch to a lower flying golf ball that's effectively three or four hundred RPMs less spin aerodynamically both spin and aerodynamics. Ballnamic allows you to marry those two things up, marry your club fitting and your golf ball fitting together synergistically. And we have it designed in a way that is educational. It walks you through thinking. Anyone can go through it. Just go to ballfitting.com. and and walks you through thinking through a golf ball like the tour players do. We literally modeled the questionnaire after how our tour players like Tony Finau and Victor and all these guys think about what's important to them in the golf ball fitting. And then you can bring launch condition numbers. If you have your driver ball speed launch and spin, and if you have your 7-iron ball speed launch and spin, you can bring those in and punch them in two ball you don't have to have that or you can have one and not the other but definitely encourage anyone that has had a recent club fitting or maybe once a season beginning of the season to go in and get your golf ball recommendation and we don't just give one ball recommendation we give four or five recommendations that are rank ordered by which ones will will probably work best for you and then you can go through and you can try a couple of them out or just kind of go to that results page see which one matches a certain area of performance in your game the best and and give it a run so it's kind of democrat, democratizing golf ball fitting leveraging some really cool testing we do that decodes the aerodynamic differences in golf balls and that's the secret you can't test balls indoors because you can't see how they fly down range and you can't test balls off a launch monitor that's only measuring the initial flight camera based system because it's also not measuring, you might have a ball that's high spin, but flies low, or low spin that flies high, you can be kind of misled by those things, so ballnamic gives that power to the individual to kind of marry those two things up.
1: One of the things that surprised me about doing a ballnamic fitting, in particular was different golf balls yielded a different number of flyers. That was the most surprising thing, I just figured, Flyers are a product of physics and essentially like the lie, the lie is going to be the essentially sole determinant of whether you have a flyer or not. But, (laughs) uh, Balnamic said, no, different golf balls have different flyers, uh, or different number of flyers or produce or more or less likely produce a flyer. Exactly. Tell us the reason for that.
0: Yeah, Dan. So we do this testing. It's really cool on our, on our robot. Where we take a club and we can introduce both moisture. So we have a very robotic pneumatic moisture sprayer that controls the moisture level on the golf ball between the ball and the face. As if you're playing on a dewy morning, or this is like, we've done this high speed video. We take a camera that's measuring 10,000 frames a second, hitting a chip shot or a pitch shot. And before, while the club's approaching the ball and picking up little blades of grass, water droplets literally get squeezed out of the grass and are deposited on the face. So you think you have a perfectly dry lie. Unless your ball's on a tee, water's in play. I can tell you that for sure. Water's in play. It's getting squeezed out of the grass. Unless you really thin it with a steep angle of attack. By the way, that's a key to hitting... um, kind of high spin uh, wedge shots around the greens is because you get really high friction. And you don't have the water between there. So we've seen that different golf balls have different propensity to shed that water out of the way, much like we do with our grooves and finish on our wedges and iron designs. So the ultimate, if you don't like flyers, which I personally hate flyers, <laughs> the ultimate is to play a Club face groove design, like our on our iron designs, that sheds water out of the way. And grooves are like treads on a tire. If it's a dry day, you don't need grooves. Actually, grooves hurt you from a spin generation standpoint if you have no water between the ball and the face. Indoor environment, for example. But the golf's not played like that. There's always debris moisture between the ball and the face. So if you hate flyers, you'd play that, and then you'd play a golf ball that on ball namic You go in there and say, "Hey, I really hate flyers." It will give you a ball that sheds water out of the way and you get better compliance between the ball and the face and reduce your probability of flyers. It it won't 100% always get rid of them because of that lie scenario you're talking about. Sometimes the ball still needs to fly through grass on its way out to get into the air, and that can have an impact on your flyer scenario, but you can drastically reduce – your probability and magnitude of flyers through golf ball design and club design. And ultimately the ultimate scenario is marry those two things together.
1: That is, that is impressive. And then the last topic before we wrap things up, a lot of our listeners should know what the stack system is. I want to ask two questions on it. The first one, just simple, tell us a little bit about the development of the stack system and uh, what you've learned helping create it and guide it as it grows
0: yeah the stack system's been fun uh co-founded with dr sasha mckenzie it was kind of another one of those things which is kind of a little bit of theme in my career where if you solve a problem for yourself you can you can help a lot of the other people with it so i mean it started with me playing in these majors not hitting it far enough i was like i need to hit it further how do we do this sasha was doing some really cool research in his lab with, with very specific overspeed overload training. That's like sprinters who train, you've seen them training with a parachute on their back. And then they'd be training behind a, a truck that uh, blocks all the air. So you have no air resistance. And then these sprinters and runners are running faster than they actually can at a very specific amount though. You can't be doing it like gross, heavy club, gross, light club, flip your driver around. Oh, it's light. It works better. You can't be doing that. That's kind of a waste of time. You want to have very specific changes in how much you swing this object faster and a little bit slower than you normally do. Sasha was doing some amazing research in his lab, so we teamed up and productized this thing. It definitely worked for me. It got me to achieve my dream, which was go to make the cut in a major championship. And the year that I trained on it, between 2018 and 19, our early prototype – but I was doing the same protocol that's in the app right now. I picked up like, you know, six, seven miles an hour of clubhead speed. That got my ball speed up back up in, into a, a realm I had never even been in when I was younger, which is in the in the low 180s or high 170s on the golf course. And so, yeah, we productized it. It's awesome hardware with tons of adjustments. It works whether you're younger or older, regardless of your speeds. And then the app is like having Sasho's brain literally in there With him formulating what you should do to give you the highest probability of gaining speed in the in the most efficient use of your time we really care about using your time wisely so you're going to train on there the app tells you exactly what to do we've learned a ton we have over i think i was looking at our database this morning i think we have over 12 million swings in our database And we get about like 35,000, 40,000 swings a day of people training on the stack, uh, over 20, 23,000 uh, folks gaining speed. The average person gains nine miles an hour of clubhead speed and 24 yards of distance in their first six weeks of training in our meat and potatoes foundation. Not only does it help your driver distance, it helps level up your irons. That's one of the big things I've learned playing the majors is like, if you can hit your irons higher. Further long irons, stop them faster, land them steeper. It's one of the kind of chronic things that's happening in 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 irons right now is that a lot of folks are going to get fit for their irons and they're they're playing low spin irons that land too low, and yeah, it might look good on an indoor launch monitor, but it's not really helping them play better golf. The stack's going to help you hit your hit your irons higher and further as well. So it's been super fun to build the company, team up with Sasho, I just love that we're helping so many people gain more speed and hit it further. If you look at our reviews page on our website, it's, it's pretty phenomenal. I encourage anyone to just go on there and don't take it from me, take it from the folks training on it and gaining a lot of club head speed.
1: Absolutely. Well, the se- second to last question here, following up on that, marrying some of the concept we've talked with Sasha, if you want to learn more about the stack, you should definitely check out that and we'll be talking about it more in the future because there's so much to dive into there for us today. You know, one of the things we talked about Sasha with was everybody has different percentiles as far as where they swing faster. And some people yep, on the heavier weights, they'll be in a higher percentile. Sometimes on the lower weights, they'll be in a higher percentile, meaning that they can swing those lighter, lighter, the lighter weighted stack at a higher percentile than they can, the heavier weighted stack. Yes. Tell, tell us marrying that with equipment fitting. Tell us what that means for someone. Let's say I go to my ping fitter and I got my stack system results here. And I can tell you mine, like the, if it's above, if it's above above 195, which for those of you hasn't, haven't tried stack, that's 195 is the inertia approximately of what a driver. Feels like. So if it's heavier than a standard driver, I can swing it in the 97th percentile. If it's lower, I'm in the 70th percentile. I take that to my ping fitter. What should they be thinking, slash, what should I be thinking?
0: Yeah, no, this is a great topic. And it's a little bit of an active area of research for us to figure out exactly what to do with that information. But generally speaking, let's say you're a golfer that on those heavier weights, you're in a higher percentile. That means that we can load on more weight for you, and you're going to maintain your speed or lose less speed than, than a, a peer in, in your peer group there. What that could mean to you is that you might be able to play a heavier driver. So we can put you into a heavier driver. And the ultimate goal of gaining more ball speed is to optimize the momentum. Now, the physics equation of momentum is mass times velocity. So if we can increase your mass without you losing a lot of speed, you'll get more momentum. Ultimately, you'll get more ball speed and you get the bone benefit, the bonus benefit of having a higher moment of inertia driver because if, if the head's heavier in mass, the forgiveness factor generally will also go up, okay? Now, that might be a good solution for you. Now, another golfer, they might be more sensitive to weight, right? So as they add uh, more mass on the stack, their percentage might start going down. Their percentile might start going down. They might start losing clubhead speed very quickly. That golfer may be more optimal in a lighter headweight driver because – because, as they uh, lose a little bit of that mass, they're going to increase their clubhead speed a lot, right? They be, they might have a different sensitivity in mass to clubhead speed. Now, that doesn't mean go out and use your stack data as the only factor to pick your perfect head weight because head weights going to change your swing weight. swing weights going to change your left right tendencies and your left right bias. But this is kind of part of the overall package of club fitting and club optimization is you can definitely start to use the sensitivity of how sensitive you are to adding mass and how much clubhead speed you lose. That's kind of a general guide for now. And I think over time, we're going to continue to build tools that will give more precise recommendations there, but it will always be packaged together. With you also, you always want to concern yourself with the optimal swing weight, your left, right bias, other factors of the the driver optimization.
1: Absolutely. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to join us. The last question we ask every guest is the same. And for you, we're going to have it as two parts. One, if you go back to yourself as a junior golfer and tell yourself just one thing, what would that one thing be? And because a lot of your stuff is pertinent as to junior golfers, if you could tell a junior golfer just one thing, what would that one thing be? I think if I had
0: to go back in time, I think I practiced like 50 yard shots. <laughs> I think I read the whole Dave Bell's book and was working on the clock system. And I put so much time into like 50 yard shots. And then you get out here and you realize you never even need that. You never, you never need that shot to, in the real world. I would focus way more time on driving the golf ball. Like generally speaking, like speed, distance, hit more drivers. It is definitely okay and is definitely encouraged to pound a lot of drivers. Like work on your driving. That that's both speed and accuracy. But become a a great driver of the golf ball. If I had to tell a junior golfer one piece of advice, just keep this game fun. You know what I mean? I think that's what I try, that's what I'm trying to teach my kids. Like golf is a game for a lifetime. It's unlike other sports where. You might play it for a little bit, and then you you know, you get too old, your career's over, what, what have you. Golf is a game for a lifetime. You can play your best golf when you're young. You play your best golf when you're old. It, your interest in the game might, might ebb and flow, depending on what else is going on with your life. But just keep it fun, man. Keep it fun. Enjoy this, this beautiful game.
1: Well, we appreciate it. Where can people find you on social media if they want to reach out to you, ask you any follow-up questions they might have?
0: Yeah, mostly active on Twitter, at Jerdy Bird. So that's my last name, and I, li- I like to make birdies. Making birdies is fun, so Jurdy Bird. So find me on Twitter, at Jerdy Bird.
1: Be sure to give Marty a follow, and then check out the stack and Ball Namek. I'm telling you, these are super cool tools. We're not paid by them. We're not, we have no financial relationship or any relationship with them in that regard. We just think these are great things to get better, so at least check them out. And then if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please subscribe and leave us a rating. And if you're listening on YouTube, please like and subscribe. This helps us get our message out to more people. And if you're trying to find us on social media, you can find us on Instagram at the tournament code and on Twitter at TournamentCode. As always, we appreciate you taking the time to join us and dive deeper into what it takes to play Elite Tournament Golf.